There's a political cartoon that was first published in 1889. In football, one team punts the ball to the other team who receives the punt. Yet this cartoon shows both teams trying to punt the ball at the same time. The caption reads, what can I do when both parties insist on kicking? The cartoonist was satirizing the political landscape of his day. He depicts Congress and then President Benjamin Harrison both trying to kick the football simultaneously. The cartoon illustrates the chaos that results when neither side of a dispute is willing to take responsibility, when both parties blame the other, when no one steps up to make the hard choices. You've heard the expression, a political football. Well, this cartoon was one of the first uses of that phrase. A political football is defined as a political issue that's continually debated but never resolved. It's an unpopular topic on which neither side really wants to take action. The decision ends up getting punted back and forth from one side to the other. No one is really willing to take the ball and run with it. And this was the case in the Roman court of Caesarea. The Apostle Paul had become a political football. Governor Felix had a prisoner who was a problem. Felix knew that Paul was innocent of any wrongdoing. But politically speaking, what should he do? If he released Paul, he would upset the Jews who Felix wanted to placate. If he condemned Paul, Felix could get in trouble with his superiors in Rome. Paul was a Roman citizen, which meant that he had legal rights. So like any good politician, what did Felix do? He punted. For two years, he kept punting Paul back and forth. He kept Paul under house arrest, and then he left Paul's fate to his successor, a man named Festus. And this is where we pick up the story tonight. Acts chapter 25 begins. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Portius Festus was the 11th Roman procurator of Judea. He ruled the region from approximately 59 to 62 AD. Governor Festus took over the post of the procurator at the age of 70 years old. He ultimately died in office. Of course, earlier in life, Festus co-starred in the television series Gunsmoke. And some of you don't even know what I'm talking about because you're too young to even have watched Gunsmoke. You've got to be an old fogey like me to, to understand the joke. Festus's predecessor, Felix, had been heavy-handed. He had been a corrupt ruler. The Jews resented Felix's administration. Festus was a better man than Felix, and he knew his first priority would be to sort of smooth out the fractured relationships that Felix had created with the Jews in Jerusalem. And that's why three days after his arrival, he goes up to the holy city. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. 
Of course, Paul now is in house arrest in Caesarea, and now the Jews want him to be brought to Jerusalem, but they had ulterior motives. You remember back in Acts chapter 23, 40 men had taken a vow not to eat until Paul was dead meat. You you remember that? Well, now two years later, these guys are getting really hungry. Really hungry. And once again, they concoct a plot to assassinate Paul. By now, two high priests have come and gone. The old man Ananias is dead. His successor, Jonathan, had been murdered by Governor Felix. A priest named Ishmael was now in power. But it didn't really matter who the priest was. The Jews' priority was the same. They hated Christianity's chief spokesperson, and they wanted Paul dead. Verse 4, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. It makes you wonder if Festus didn't smell a rat. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Festus says, let's go to Caesarea and let's have a trial. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. You know, American justice has rules forbidding double jeopardy, but not so among the ancient Romans. And Paul here is back in court defending himself against the very same charges that had been brought against him earlier. Verse 7, now when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself Neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. All the Jews could throw up was lies and false accusations. They had no real evidence against Paul that he had committed any wrongdoing. And Paul was adamant. He maintained his innocence. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem And there be judged before me concerning these things. Now, Paul was politically astute. He knew that after the ruthlessness of Felix, Festus wanted to do whatever was necessary to win back Jewish favor. Festus might have thought that Paul could get a fair trial in Jerusalem, but Paul knew better. A trial in Jerusalem would be a death sentence for Paul. There were too many people there that wanted him dead. The priests would try to kill him. And thus Paul throws down now the trump card that he has been holding in his hand. He was a Roman, and it was every Roman citizen's right to appeal his case to the Caesar. Verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, As you very well know, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And the governor seals the appeal. 
You remember when Paul first was arrested in the temple there in Jerusalem? We're told back in Acts chapter 23, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. In fact, as far back as Acts chapter 19, Paul purposed in his spirit that he must also see Rome. Paul knew that God's itinerary for him included Rome, but never in his wildest dreams did he think that he would make the trip in the manner that he does. By appealing to Caesar, he'll get the opportunity to preach before the emperor himself. He'll be able to preach the gospel to Nero. In addition, the whole trip, food and travel and taxes and duties and tips, will all be paid for by the Roman government. You know, it's true. God works in mysterious ways. And here's a really good example. Well, verse 13. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, two more characters make their debut in the story. King Agrippa II, he was the last of the Herods. By this time, Rome had stripped his family of almost all of its royal power. Agrippa was basically a puppet figure, a a figurehead. Bernice was his sister. She was also the sister of Drusilla, the wife of the previous governor, Felix. Drusilla and Bernice were also both members of the Herodian family and great-granddaughters of Herod the Great. History tells us that Bernice had three failed marriages and ended up living as a co-regent or a co-ruler in the court of her brother Agrippa II. Appearance-wise, Bernice was a real beauty, but character-wise, she was bankrupt. Several ancient writers say that she and Agrippa II, they lived in an incestuous relationship, brother and sister. Agrippa II never married, and so we're left to wonder. Later in life, Bernice left Agrippa to have an affair with the infamous Roman general Titus Vespasian. This was the general that conquered Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. Eventually, Bernice left Titus and returned to Agrippa. Obviously, she was fickle and she was flirtatious. She and Agrippa at the time were kind of like a Hollywood couple. They were a celebrity couple. And here, Governor Festus invites them to the party. He invites them to come to the trial, Rome versus Paul. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. The Romans valued themselves in in fair and honest jurisprudence. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive." Paul was the Jews' leading public enemy. 
And Felix figured that there had to be some kind of violent crime, some kind of terrorist activity that had caused the Jews to oppose him so fiercely. He was surprised to hear that what angered the Jews were religious matters, and specifically that Paul claimed that Jesus was alive. Well, Governor Festus was the new kid on the block. He was ignorant of the previous history, and so he continues. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Augustus, by the way, was one of the Roman emperor's official titles. It meant the revered or the august one. It later became a title associated with the evil idolatry of emperor worship. Verse 22, And then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. And so the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. Now, this auditorium that Luke mentions is a highlight on our trips to Israel. The Roman amphitheater in Caesarea is a magnificent venue. It's situated right by the beach where 3,000 spectators face seaward toward the bright blue Mediterranean waters. Its focal point is an enormous stage, a marble stage. Stairs lead from the stage downward into dark stone holding rooms situated below the flooring. About nine rows up in the seating, right in the middle of the bleachers, is a platform reserved for the dignitaries, the box seats, if you will. Even today, you can sit where Festus and Agrippa heard Paul on stage delivering his defense. Now imagine this enormous stadium. It's packed to the gills. Everybody who was anybody had gathered for the show. Roman officials stationed in Caesarea, Jewish aristocrats up from Jerusalem. All the leading dignitaries were there. The last to be seated would have been Governor Festus, followed by King Agrippa and Bernice. I picture them sort of prancing into the amphitheater with great pomp, great circumstances. The trumpets blow their fanfare. Imagine a red carpet walk at the Oscars. The three strutted in like peacocks. Finally, out of the dark recesses of the substage, Paul is thrust into this blinding sunshine. He's now center stage before a hostile crowd. Hear the jeers and the sneers from the crowd. Paul can barely see through his squinted eyes. Now remember the physical description that tradition gives us of Paul. We talked about this earlier. He was bald-headed, bow-legged, a hunchback. He had runny eyes. He had a crooked nose. He had big, bushy eyebrows. On his tiptoes, Paul was barely five feet tall. Paul was a pitiful human specimen to behold. He was weak and fragile and small. Now compare him to the well-dressed and dignified crowd filling this theater. 
Festus is clothed in his Roman armor and in his military splendor. Agrippa wears his royal robes. His gorgeous mistress is in her elegant gown, sitting by his side. Most folks in Paul's shoes would have been a little bit intimidated. They would have been a bit threatened, but not Paul. Here in his speech, he shows tremendous poise and incredible courage. In verse 24, Festus begins. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us. Paul's trying to get used to the sunshine as he's been brought up from the dungeon. You see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. Paul's citizenship, his citizens' appeal to the Caesar had bought him a ticket to Rome. Festus, though, had a problem. He says, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord, the Caesar, concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. I mean, how could Festus send a prisoner to Rome and clog up the legal system without some kind of substantial charge? What was Paul's crime? It had yet to be determined. Festus needs a reason to deport Paul to Rome, and so he asks for Agrippa's help. Chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I love how he begins. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. I'm tired of being a political football, and I'm about to tell you the truth. What an introduction. I think myself happy. Now, remember, the man's been under house arrest for two years. He's been a political football, punted back and forth, used by the Romans against the Jews, threatened by the Jews in the face of the Romans. And yet here he stands before the crowd, and he says, I am a happy man. Obviously, Paul's joy came not from his circumstances, but from his relationship with Jesus. Where does your joy come from? Is it dependent on the ups and downs of circumstance, the highs and lows of this life? Do you feel like a political football kicked all over the place? Hey, we need to take our joy from Jesus Christ. I love the word rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That's what Paul said to the Philippians. You know what that word rejoice means? Well, I got a definition for it. It means to take joy. Sometimes you don't wait for joy to just fall in your lap. You take joy. You reach up to Jesus and you take joy from him, and there's always an abundance of joy in our Lord. Well, Paul says, I'm a happy man. Verse 3, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. 
Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Paul was happy to have King Agrippa to hear his case. Agrippa was a Herod. He was a card-carrying member of the Jewish establishment. He'd grown up in Israel. He was knowledgeable of the nation's recent events, unlike Festus, who'd come from Rome. Paul assumes that Agrippa is the perfect person to issue a fair verdict in the case before these dignitaries. Well, in verse 4, Paul begins to share his testimony. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Saul had been a familiar face in the temple. His credentials were well known. You remember before Paul's conversion, Saul was a leading rabbi. He says, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Saul was a loyal Jew. He was a devout legalist. Pharisees were legalistic about being legalism, about their legalism. No one was stricter than Rabbi Saul. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Paul hoped for nothing more than what every Jew before him had hoped for. Salvation. A right relationship with God. Eternity with the Father. Paul wanted to be made right with God and live forever. This was every man's hope. And thus Paul asked in verse 8, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? The bottom line to Paul's belief and the core principle of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to Paul, it made sense. If God can provide eternal life to all men, then surely he can raise his own son from the dead. If God is God, why doubt Jesus' resurrection? You know, sometimes we're slow to believe a miracle because we forget who it is that's performing the task. If you were to ask me to lift a 300-pound barbell, you'd probably have your doubts. But if you ask an NFL lineman to lift that barbell, you'd assume, oh, sure, no problem. Likewise, miracles that are difficult for us become easy for an almighty God. Take, for example, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. I love this verse. The prophet Isaiah makes some astonishing statements about God. First, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know, the 21 major oceans that spread across the planet Earth cover a total area of 138 million square miles. And the combined average depth of those oceans is 4,200 feet. Now that's a lot of water. Yet Isaiah declares that God holds the oceans in the cup of his hand. The second statement that Isaiah makes is that God has measured heaven with a span. An ancient span was the difference between the king's thumb and his little finger. That was the span. Now think of the 100 billion stars that dot our galaxy and then the 100 million more galaxies. 
Our universe is enormous, and yet it all fits within God's span between his thumb and his pinky. You know, it's been said, if you believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you should have no problem believing the remaining 31,102 verses. If God created all things, then he can do with all things whatever God pleases, including raising his son Jesus from the dead. And this is why Paul asked the crowd, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Verse 9, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. At one time, Saul had been on the opposing team. He was the leading antagonist against Christianity. He says, this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul was the official henchman. He had done the high priest dirty work. It was up to him to round up the Christians and throw them into prison. Often he oversaw their execution. Case in point was Stephen. When Paul says, I cast my vote against them, scholars believe that this implies that he was an official member of the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court of the Jews. The Apostle Paul had not only arranged executions, he had provided the legal justification for carrying them out. And then verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Rabbi Saul was vicious. He was on the warpath. I'm sure Saul was particularly ashamed after his conversion of how antagonistic he had been to the Christians, that he had threatened believers in Jesus with death unless they recant their faith. Notice he had compelled them to blaspheme. I wonder, did he ever put a knife to a child's throat and give the dead the option, renounce Jesus or your boy dies? You wonder if he ever did that. What horrors did he devise to torture the Christians? Rabbi Saul was a first century terrorist. But here's the provocative point. If God is willing to forgive a man like Saul and turn him into a Paul, if he's able to forgive a man of such unspeakable crimes, don't you think he'll forgive you of your sin? I bet he will. Here's grace in action. If God can forgive us Saul, then he can forgive us all. Verse 11 says, an angry Saul not only ran Christians out of Jerusalem, but he tracked them to foreign cities. And it was on one such warpath to Damascus that Saul got intercepted. Verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, and I love how he throws that in, at midday, at high noon, Notice the storylines like a typical Western. God's showdown with Paul occurs at high noon. And along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, the risen Lord Jesus spoke to Paul. And notice he spoke in Hebrew. Isn't that interesting? Remember, Jesus is a Jew. He wasn't against Judaism. In fact, he was its fulfillment. What language does God speak? Well, we know he speaks with a southern accent. We know that. But, I mean, what language does he speak? Here he spoke Hebrew. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love the Lord's analysis here. Saul was actually persecuting Christians, but Jesus took it personally, did he not? He asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? Rest assured, whenever the church encounters persecution, Jesus takes it very, very personally. And then the Lord said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were the sharp pointed sticks used to prod the cattle. Today, high-tech cowboys use electric shockers to maneuver and to steer their steers in the right direction. The witness that Stephen, the witness of Stephen back in the temple, I'm sure that had prodded Saul. The faithfulness of the saints had shocked his conscience. The growth of the church, despite his best efforts, had goaded him into reconsidering. God had been working on his heart, goading and prodding and preparing him for this moment. One commentator writes, The lightning of Damascus struck no empty void, but found plenty of flammable material in the soul of Paul. Even before the divine encounter on the road to Damascus, God had been prodding. He had been pushing. He had been exposing Saul. He had been working on his heart. Saul had been bucking, but God had been prodding. Guess who wins? And you know, God continues to prod people even today. We call it conviction. God shines the truth of his word and exposes our sin. He points us to the Savior and shows us our need. He wrestles us over our stubbornness. On the road to Damascus, God finally pins Saul. It's a takedown. He humbles Rabbi Saul with his glory and grace, but he's been working on his heart for a long, long time. Verse 15. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. And I love this. God knocks him down. Jesus forces a stubborn Saul to his knees. But then the same God stands him back on his feet. And this is how God treats us. He knocks us down, but then he lifts us up. Jesus turns Saul's into Paul's. You know, the word Saul means requested one. The name Paul means little Rabbi Saul thought he was big stuff. He was the requested one. He was a religious celebrity. But the Apostle Paul learned that he was nothing but a little guy. He was a simple servant employed and empowered by a great big God. And then Jesus adds, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, 
to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Jesus appeared to Paul for a purpose, and that was to make him a minister and a witness. Did you know this is what God wants you to be? This is what he wants to make you, a minister and a witness. The Greek word translated minister means under roar. It referred to the slave ships of Rome that were manned with oars in the belly of the ship. Men would, slaves would man the oars and they would uh, row in cadence with each other and push the Roman ship forward. Paul was one of these under rowers in the gospel ship. He had thrown away his celebrity status to row with Jesus. He'd become a servant. And he was also called to be a witness. Now now notice, a witness is not a judge who renders the verdict. It's not up to you to render the verdict. Nor a clerk who keeps records. I hope you stop keeping records. That's not your job. Neither is a witness a lawyer who argues cases. No, a witness is someone who simply tells his story. And this is a good reminder for us. It's not our job to cast judgments or to keep score, or to argue cases. We're just a witness. It's our job to simply tell people what Jesus has done for us. I believe all Christians have been called to be a minister and a witness. All of us should be willing to grab an oar and tell our story. In verse 17, the Lord also told Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now remember at this particular time in the story, Paul's sitting on a curb blind as a bat. He's just been blinded by this light on the Damascus road. And yet now the Lord tells Paul that he's going to open the eyes of the Jews and the Gentiles. He's going to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the kingdom of God. Soon Paul will recover his physical sight, but he'll spend the rest of his life helping other people see spiritually. And you know, I found that there's no greater joy than to help someone see. I once watched a documentary about a group of ophthalmologists who were removing cataracts in Africa. They were doing a magnificent work. Removing a cataract is a relatively simple procedure. But in Africa, I mean, it's, it, it changes the lives of these people. I mean, it makes the difference literally between blindness and sight. In watching the documentary, it was such a joy to see the reactions of the people who had benefited from the surgery. Literally, I mean, they'd gone from darkness to light. They were elated. They were overjoyed. It was so rewarding and life-changing for them and for the doctors who did the procedures. And the same is true when you help someone open their eyes, when you open someone's spiritual eyes, when you show them a scripture, when you help them understand its meaning and apply it to their lives and watch them get it and see it sink in. What could be more thrilling than to lead someone out of darkness into light? 
And then Paul continues his address in verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Paul was knocked down and humbled as an example to others. Now all men, Jews and Romans, need to repent, he says. Repent means to turn. They need to turn to God. Not just in making empty promises, but really showing in their behavior that they're willing to change. They need to substantially turn and move in a new direction. Paul was adamant that people repent. You know, he paid a steep price for this message. A steep price for this insistence. Notice he adds, For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Why? Because he preached repentance. Remember, Noah wasn't ridiculed and mocked for standing on the deck of the ark and shouting, Something good is going to happen to you today. Jeremiah wasn't thrown into the dungeon for preaching your best life now. Daniel wasn't heaved to the lions chanting, smile, Jesus loves you. Amos didn't confront the wicked priest with, oh, I'm okay and you're okay. John the Baptist wasn't beheaded for having a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on his Audi. And Paul wasn't arrested for encouraging people to look great, feel great. All these people preach repent. And it was for this reason that they were persecuted. Verse 22, Paul continues. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great. And there were both types of people in the crowd that day, from the average Jew to Agrippa and Bernice, from the small to the great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul affirms that all he had done was repeat Moses and the prophets what they had spoken and written. The truth that he had preached had been foretold in the Old Testament. Paul, in essence, is saying to his accusers, you need to get a Bible and read it. All I've been preaching is just the Bible. Everything Paul believed and preached about Jesus had been predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 24, And now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, he interrupts him, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Festus interrupted Paul. He thought that Paul had gone nuts. You're beside yourself or you've gone crazy. He thought that his study of the Scripture had forced him into an absurd conclusion. You see, the Romans were naturalists. The idea of a corpse coming back to life was completely foreign to Festus' thinking. The governor assumed that Paul was certifiably crazy, and yet Paul was the sanest person in the auditorium that day. Once an inspector was reviewing procedures at the state insane asylum, He asked how the hospital evaluated if a person should be institutionalized. Well, the director of the asylum, he took him into a bathroom, and he pointed to the tub. He explained, 
we fill this tub with water and we show the person a teaspoon, a teacup, and a bucket. Then we ask him or her to empty the tub. The state inspector said, oh, and if they don't ask for a bucket, you admit them? The director replied, no. If the person doesn't pull the plug, we admit them. Do you want a room on the first or the second floor? I mean, Festus thought that Paul needed to be institutionalized. But Paul was the only person in the room with any courage and with any honesty to embrace the obvious. For Paul replies to Festus, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Paul wasn't crazy, and the truth isn't hazy. Paul points out that Christianity is a reasonable faith. The truths we believe from creation to the resurrection to the second coming are based on rational and historical and verifiable facts. All Paul had done was to speak the words of truth and reason. Verse 26, For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Suddenly, Paul turns the conversation from the Roman to the Jew sitting next to him, and he puts King Agrippa on the spot. Remember, Festus was the new kid on the block. He had just gotten to to Palestine. He wasn't familiar with what had happened earlier. But Agrippa and Bernice, they were Hebrews. They had been alive and living in the land 27 years earlier when a carpenter from Nazareth preached in the streets and worked miracles among the people. Agrippa and Bernice had read the headlines in the Jerusalem Post. The resurrection of Jesus had been big news. They knew the stunning evidence. As Paul reminds him, this thing was not done in a corner. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, Paul reels off a list of numerous eyewitnesses who saw firsthand the risen Christ. And he did so to challenge all doubters to visit these people, verify their stories. See, early Christians weren't afraid to put the truth of the resurrection to the test. It's vital to realize that Christianity is not just a list of dogmas or philosophies. It's more than abstract ideas. Christianity is based on falsifiable facts. If the Jews could have produced Jesus' corpse, Christianity would have been stopped before it was ever launched. A body would have shut it down before it ever started up. Paul reminds Agrippa that the foundation of Christianity is not some clandestine, mystical act performed in a secluded room in a secret location. No, God invaded time and space. He became a human being. He lived in the real world under Pontius Pilate and on a hill just outside of Jerusalem in full view of the entire world. God's only son was brutally nailed to a Roman cross. You don't get any realer than that. And to this day, 2,000 years later, you can go to the land where his body laid And discover for yourself that the tomb is empty. This thing was not done in a corner, he says to Agrippa. And Agrippa knew Paul was telling the truth. 
The apostle grows bolder in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And he doesn't give him time to even answer. He says, I know that you believe. Of course Agrippa believes. All Jews believed what was written by the prophets. Paul has Agrippa on the ropes. He refuses to let him off the hook. He knew that the prophets had written of a resurrected one. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. One of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. He was almost persuaded. And as the old saying goes, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Surely not in salvation. Recall Governor Felix. He looked for a more convenient time while Agrippa was almost persuaded. God had tugged on both men's hearts. They both knew the truth, but they failed to promptly respond to God's call. And sadly, there's no evidence that either man got another opportunity. In verse 29, Paul answers Agrippa. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Now he's preaching to the crowd. He's looking beyond just the box seats where the three are sitting, but he's looking to the whole auditorium. And he's saying, I wish that all of you were just as I am, but without these chains, had my faith, but not the persecution. In his defense, Paul had zeroed in on Agrippa, but now he expands the invitation to all men. His goal was to persuade everyone in the theater that day to become a Christian. And you know, you and I should have that same ambition. We can't force people to become Christians, nor would we want to. But we can persuade people with the truth. Let's make it our goal to be as persuasive as possible. Let's seek to convince people to follow Jesus. We're not offering suggestions. We're trying to be persuasive. We want people to come to know the truth about Jesus. Whenever we present the gospel, our listeners need to understand that the gospel necessitates a decision. The gospel always invokes a decision. It's a reasonable decision. It's a consequential decision. It's a precedent.